There is no real indication of when the first boats were developed, and I guess it would depend on what you would call a boat. It could have been one million years ago, when man could use tools to carve out some kind of canoe. Or it could have been 40,000 years ago. But what must have struck everybody who got into a boat was that it was far easier to travel down water than on land. And it was far quicker and easier to travel with large goods down a waterway than it was over land. In the 18th century it was noted that with a horse you could only carry one-eighth of a ton and on a well-made road it could go up to two tons but put the cargo on a canal boat and you could carry 50 tons. Navigable rivers were ideal for transporting cargo hence why so many cities grew on the banks of rivers but even rivers have problems. Rivers don't flow smoothly in straight lines they meander across the country, change speeds, have different depths and widths. All in all, they were good, but not perfect. A navigable canal avoids all of these problems, but it requires a lot of money, not to mention the technical skills needed to build it. For a lot of human history, travel has been one of life's greatest problems. It's easy enough to walk a few miles, but even a few miles with a heavy load on your back is not an easy thing to do. Make it 10 miles with a heavy load and it becomes almost an impossibility. You could have a horse and make it easier, but horses are expensive. For most of the Middle Ages in Europe, roads for example were the same ones used in Roman times, just with hundreds of years of neglect added to them. The places where transport was quick and easy invariably saw the best economic progress. Travelling around the Netherlands, for example, was far easier and quicker than in any other European country. Why? The proliferation of waterways and canals made it quicker and cheaper to travel than in any other country. Initially, canals were used by men who would pull the canal boats down a towpath. It was still heavy work, but made the process of carrying and transporting goods far quicker and cheaper than any other method available. This was until the invention of the engine allowed for canal travel to be even quicker. There are three stages of canal development. The first is the simple linking of rivers together by canal. The second stage is the linking of industrial towns and cities by canal to each other or to the sea. The third stage is cutting across continents, so ships don't have to go all the way around them. All three processes have stimulated much economic growth and development. The first allowed for ancient cities and civilizations to thrive. The second for the Industrial Revolution. And the third allowed for the current stage of mass globalization we're currently living in. Early canals were used to help irrigation of land especially in the ancient world. City-states such as Umar and Lagesh in Mesopotamia were fighting in around 2500 BC over arable land and the access to water that could help with that. Using slaves, it was possible to dig the canals. As H.R. Hall says, quote, The state of chaos, half water and half land, of the fans of the southern Babylonia before civilization began its work of draining and canalizing. 
Governments and elites were of course very concerned about this early state of maintaining arable land and taxable land, as this is where their power lay. We don't know much about the exact early history of the canal, as it's mostly prehistory. But there are a few things we do know, and we know of their importance. Early civilizations, such as that in Mesopotamia, used man-made or man-altered waterways out of the marshy lands that existed. Water is of course vital to life, and its use in these wetlands helped stimulate the earliest civilization. And of course water was required to make the state, either from constant rainfall or irrigation with a nearby water source. But water was important in many other different aspects. No state can possibly be economically independent, whether it's the earliest civilizations or North Korea today, and so it precipitated the demand for trade. Timber, firewood, leather, obsidian, copper, tin, gold and silver, honey, pottery, cloth, grain, and artisanal products were all required. No place could possibly have all of these within a couple of hours horse ride, and so trade was needed to facilitate it. James Scott even says that, quote, no water transport, no state, close quotes, is only an exaggeration for almost every single civilization. As late as the start of the 19th century, despite people thinking it was an urban myth, it took as long to travel from Southampton to Edinburgh as to Cape Town. With 20 days from Southampton to Edinburgh and 24 days from Southampton to Cape Town, it showed relative importance even in this late stage of human development in water transport. The waterway was a vital part of transport, and especially for these early civilizations in Mesopotamia. Of course, all of these waterways, natural or otherwise, had other impacts. It allowed for what Robert Carneiro calls the hemmed-in populace. In early Egypt, China and Mesopotamia, populations were hemmed in by natural frontiers, and the difficulty in making a living in these natural frontiers compared to any civilization. This resulted in a captive population who needed the state to provide for them. Egyptians of the 6th dynasty, from 2332 BC to 2283 BC, Egypt was in desperate need for transport at the time. The pharaohs wanted to build the pyramids, but they were a long way away from stone, so an efficient system for moving mass blocks of stone must have been needed. An account from the tomb of a general in the Egyptian army called Winai says that the pharaoh required five canals to be built. These were completed within a year, and they were there to move granite blocks to move the pyramid at Marine. These canals were used to bring the stone to the Nile, and then to improve navigation on the Nile. The most ambitious scheme was to link the Nile with the Red Sea, but information dries up a little when we look further into it. The most reliable source of its creation comes from Herodotus. I won't quote the full account, but safe to say it was a large construction project. Herodotus tells us that 120,000 died building the canal, and when it was built in 500 BC, it was 50 miles wide and 100 kilometers long. In the 3rd century BC, there was a rebuilding of the canal, and a clever device was added by Ptolemy Philadelphus. It was an early version of the lock, something the Chinese were already developing. But the canal was not a huge success. 
The amount of silt and the difference in water levels resulted in the canal not being used as much as thought, and it fell into disuse. Perhaps the most obvious need for a canal in ancient European times was in the Corinth Isthmus. Look at the map of Greece, and the Peloponnese is attached to the Greek mainland only very slightly, and various attempts were made to create a canal here, but it was almost solid rock from one end to the other. The solution was for a paved road over the isthmus, with grooves cut into the path to take standard-sized wagons, which some have suggested is the first ever railroad. There were several ideas about building this canal on the Corinth Isthmus. And when the Romans took over, they looked into it as well. Nero cut the first slot himself, and then handed over the work to thousands of Jewish slaves. But when Nero died, the idea was abandoned, until 1881, when it was finally restarted. The most famous canal of the ancient world lies in China. The Grand Canal in China is not one waterway, but several schemes worked on over the years. It had its origins in irrigation rather than transport, and begins with the Wild Geese Canal, which linked the Yellow River to the Huai River. The difference in levels was so small that vessels could use the canal without needing a lock. Scholars normally date its building to the 6th century BC. The next section was the Han Kuo military canal, built in the 5th century to join the Huai to the Yangtze. This canal was extended over the centuries, and in the 6th century AD, it was extended to include flash locks, single gates that could be closed off on an upper section of the canal from the lower section, but when opened allowed the vessels to ride on the current. One of the more impressive achievements came with the supplying of the summit level of the canal, which was 138 feet above the mean level of the Yangtze. This was solved with a vast dam built to create a reservoir in just 200 days. The Grand Canal was 1,035 miles long from Beijing to Huangzhou, and was unknown to Europeans when they reached China. The canal fell into disuse, and so some of the more ingenious inventions on the canal, like the pound lock, the lock we use today, would have to be reinvented all over again. With the fall of the Roman Empire in Europe, rivers continued to be used for navigation, but nothing was done to improve them. While a new invention actually hindered the use of the river as transport, the Doomsday Book in England records 10,000 watermills in England by 1086. They needed a steady supply of water to turn their wheels, and so weirs were built, blocking the river for navigation. To overcome the obstacles of the weir, a flash lock was often built into the gap of the weir. Flash locks were useful, but not the best. In 1034, a flash lock caused the death of 60 men, women and children, while the last flash lock in use was on the Thames in 1931. There wasn't much development of the artificial waterway in the medieval period. The one place that did see genuine development was in the Netherlands. The Netherlands had numerous sluice gates to control water levels. These too proved an impediment to navigable waterways, 
and so ramps were built to take them from one water level to the next. Over time, this developed, meaning that the sluice gates were built to be big enough to have the boats pass through them, and this system allowed the boats to pass through between the dikes and tidal rivers and estuaries when the levels were equal. The only problem was that tidal waters and dikes only reached the same level twice a day. In 1378, a variation appeared in Reisbrick, near Utrecht, where two sluice gates appeared very close to each other, effectively creating one very large lock. This was an early version of the pound lock that had previously been invented in China, but by the time the Europeans had got to China, they had disappeared, and so the Dutch basically reinvented the pound lock. Dutch locks were not used to make up differences in height and land, famously being flat, but rather to make up the difference between the canals and the natural waterways. However, in 1391-1398, the Stetsnik Canal was a summit-level canal, with one of the central sections higher than the levels at either end. Connecting Lauenburg and Lubeck on the old salt route by linking the rivers of the Stecknitz, a tributary of the Trave, and the Delvenau, a tributary of the Elbe, it would rapidly increase trade in the fast-growing North Sea to Baltic sea route. Locks up until this point had been closed off with portcullis gates, which had to be raised to a considerable height to allow ships to pass through. There is debate and uncertainty about who came up with the new designs, but the first description of the idea comes from Leonardo da Vinci, who helped construct six new locks for the Martesina Canal in 1497. Leonardo's sketches could be a sketch of any canal today in Britain. Instead of being raised vertically, the gates swing horizontally, meeting at an angle. The gates are angled upstream, so the force of the water pushes them closer to create a watertight seal. These gates didn't come to Britain until the 16th century. Navigation of the river X between Exeter and the sea had been blocked off by a weir. The people of Topsham had little intention to change things, as it meant they had a port, and any change would allow people to go upstream and bypass their little port. So the people of Exeter employed John True to design a canal around the town. The canal was only small, five miles, and had a lock built at the end closest to the sea, of 189 feet long by 23 feet wide, and then goods could be allowed to reach Exeter going around Topsham. Canals continued to be built in much of the 16th century in Europe, especially around Belgium, Netherlands and Germany. During this time, Britain had been focusing on improving its river systems. In 1660, there were 660 miles of navigable rivers in England, and by 1720 it reached 1,160 miles. It was in the textile manufacturers of places like Leeds, Halifax, Rochdale and Wakefield who were asking for these improvements to river navigations. An act to do the required work failed to pass in 1625, but in 1699 it succeeded. There were many other schemes throughout Britain and Ireland, but these were all river improvements. Yet, slowly, some rivers started to resemble more canal than river.
But it was a lot later in Britain than in continental Europe where we start to see canals that would have no connection to natural waterways. It would be remiss of me at this point to just talk about rivers for intercity travel and commerce. In fact, most great cities are built on some form of natural waterways. However, some cities have been more planned out and built on artificial waterways. You're probably thinking of Venice right now, yet canal experts believe that technically Venice is not built on artificial waterways but river navigations. Early Venetian history is unclear, but before the days of the Roman Empire, the people around Venice lived on the continent, and with raids and attacks from northern European tribes, they moved to the Venetian lagoon, a marshy land and a place of safety. They built houses on wooden piles to raise them above the water level and created small islands. The Venetians used the inlets and channels around islands to get around. Hence, Venice isn't really built on canals. Amsterdam, meanwhile, like a lot of the Netherlands, was built on reclaimed land by having its marshy lands drained. Historical geographer Christy Bond believes Amsterdam may have been built as late as the 10th century. By the 15th century, the settlement developed as an important port and the single canal was built from the waterfront to the sea at the Amstel River, enclosing the city. It was intended as a defensive moat, however, as trade grew, it was used for commerce, bringing everything into Amsterdam from spices to slaves. The city, however, could not just sustain itself on the single canal, and so the city elders planned a whole new set of concentric canals. The building of canals was a marvel of urban planning, with it carefully planned around the city and plots sold straight away around the new waterways. So magnificent were the canals that UNESCO gave the Amsterdam Canal District a World Heritage Site status, saying that, quote, Amsterdam was seen as the realisation of the ideal city that was used as a reference urban model for new cities around the world, close quotes. It wasn't just in Europe where canals were popular. In a place known to the locals as Krung Thep, and to us in the West as Bangkok, King Rama I of Thailand decided to establish a new city on the eastern bank of the Chao Prara River. The original settlement near the river mouth was defined by a canal that acted as a moat. The canal was intended to be a defensive moat, while this original canal was added to and enabled much produce into and out of the new city. The canals were meant both as a defensive barrier and town planning, but also to manage water levels as Bangkok lies on a floodplain. Produce was brought in and out of the city and provided the main transport for the city. Today, Bangkok's canals are still in use, but nowhere near as important to the city as they once were. Yet Baghdad is still seen as one of the great canal cities of the world. Back in Europe, and it was 17th century France that entered Europe into a new age of ambition. Starting with an ambitious attempt to link the Seine and the Loire River in 1604, a new canal was built consisting of 48 locks, 35 miles long, and the first summit-level canal to be built in Europe with pound locks. Despite starting in 1604, it took until 1642 
for the canal to be finished after much delay. Issues with surveying and even the assassination of Henry IV all added to the problems. Once it was open, the canal was a great success. It enabled wine, timber and coal from the south to get to the north. By the middle of the 18th century, there were 500 wine barges working on the canal. The boats were pulled by men down the canal route at far quicker speeds than could be achieved over land. With the Briar Canal built, there was an attempt at an even more ambitious canal. The Canal de Languedoc, or Canal du Midi. A canal that would cut across the whole of France, linking the Med to the Atlantic. The idea was not new. In the early 16th century, Francis I was the king of both France and Milan. He was impressed by Milan's canals, and so sent an engineer to France. That engineer was Leonardo da Vinci, who drew up a route. The issue was, how do you get the water to the summit to supply the canal? The solution was found by a man, Pierre-Paul Riquet, who had no previous experience engineering, but had been a tax collector, and so knew the region well, and could see what great value adding a canal would bring to the region. After much planning, and getting the king to authorise construction in October 1666, the canal project could get underway. By winter of 1667, 12,000 people were at work. Like most large engineering projects, work proceeded slowly. The canal faced many engineering problems that even today would prove challenging. They dug a tunnel of 165 metres at 7 metres wide in just six days, and a seven-locked staircase with a drop of 21.5 metres in just 280 metres. But this was Riquet's last hurrah. He died in October 1680, just seven months before the canal opened. The grand opening of the canal took place on the 15th of May 1681, with ships setting off from Toulouse and reaching the other side at the set ten days later. Financially, the canal was a great success too. 250 boats used the canal, each carrying 60 tonnes. Goods later peaked at 110 million tonnes per year. But by the mid of the 19th century, the arrival of the railway started to eat away at business. Today, the canal is mostly used for pleasure boating. By the early 18th century, canals had spread to much of Europe. There were Prussian, Italian, French and Irish canals, all of which were great successes. While the Canal du Midi became a stopping point on British aristocrats' grand tour of Europe. One aristocrat who was suitably impressed was the third Duke of Bridgewater, Francis Egerton. The phrase, what came first, the chicken or egg, annoys me. Before the chicken was the jungle fowl, and that laid eggs too. And so did the jungle fowl's ancestor, all the way back to the dinosaurs, and perhaps further back than that. So quite obviously, the egg came first. Anyway, where is this going? So a better question to ask what came first is the canal in Britain or the Industrial Revolution, for the two are far more closely linked than the chicken and egg ever have been. The Industrial Revolution started in Britain around 1760, and with this, the story of the canal in Britain takes place. There is a large divide in historical study, as I'm sure many are aware, 
about whether we ascribe great events to the results of one man's genius and their actions, or do we take it all as trends and forces, with no clear narrative in history, in just the chaos of the anarchic society we all live in? Well, the answer lies, really, in what period of history you study. If you study the French Revolution, there is very little action by great men that explains its breakout. But if you study Napoleonic France, there really is only one person's action you need to study. The Industrial Revolution is one of those events where almost no person can take any real credit. By the middle of the 1700s, there was already a slow and gradual change taking place, as people started to move away from the country and towards the city. This resulted in a need for people to get the basic resources they could previously gather from the commons, which now needed to be gotten into the city. The discovery by Abraham Darby, who produced a method of producing pig iron in a blast furnace, fueled by coke rather than charcoal, had helped stimulate the use of coal for industrial production. This is where the Duke of Bridgewater, Francis Egerton, comes in. There was profit to be made if somebody could get the pig iron quickly from producer to customer. The Duke's estate included mines at Worsley, which was only a few miles from the rapidly growing Lancashire town of Manchester. Egerton knew, having seen the French do it earlier, what was the best way forward. He applied to Parliament to build his canal, as Acts of Parliament were required to build the canals. In 1760, in the exact year historians generally mark the Industrial Revolution as truly beginning, the Bridgewater Canal Act was passed. Egerton and his engineer, James Brindley, started work on it straight away. Brindley claimed that his canal processed a new invention. That was the use of puddle clay to keep the canal bed watertight, but in fact was something the French had already done with the Canal du Midi. The opening of the Bridgewater Canal caused something of a sensation. The fact that boats were passing over another river on an aqueduct caused such a sensation that people would regularly stop off to watch the boats pass overhead. The aqueduct was demolished in 1893, but thanks to the photograph we do have one surviving photo of it. I mean it is just a photo of an aqueduct, but it's online if you want to see it. The result of the canal was that the price of coal at the Worldly Mine was cut in half almost overnight. All over Britain, new manufacturing techniques resulted in new demand for fuel and transporting needs. In Stoke-on-Trent, Josiah Wedgwood wanted to make porcelain for the middle classes. Wedgwood thought, instead of importing it from the Far East, where it would have to come all the way down the Silk Road, he could build it himself. However, his issue was that Stoke clay was not the best clay for the job, so he bought much paler clay from Devon and Cornwall. Getting them to Stoke over land was expensive, never mind that the clay over the bumpy roads would have sent it everywhere. And so Wedgwood became the main promoter of a new canal to get it into Stoke-on-Trent far quicker. Therefore, the Trenton Mersey Canal was built to connect the River Trent and the River Mersey via the Bridgewater Canal. This canal was another challenge for engineers of the day, and so Wedgwood turned to the man in Britain with the most expertise on canals, James Brindley. 
The main obstacle for Brindley was that the canal needed to cross a low line of hills. It would have been very difficult to go over and so a tunnel was needed. The Canal du Midi had a canal tunnel of a few hundred yards. This canal needed a tunnel a mile and a half long. The tunnel was designed for just one boat at a time, with set times of which direction you could travel through the canal. With no towpaths, the boat could only be moved by legging. This was the practice of two men lying on their backs on the canal boat and pushing against the roof of the canal to push the canal boat through the tunnel. The total length of the canal was 93 miles long, which earned it the name the Grand Trunk, and it was on a scale completely unheard of in Britain. The difficulty in building the tunnel was so immense that only very specific canal boats could pass through. They could be no more than 70 foot by 7 foot, which created the standard length of the British narrowboat that even survives today. At the same time, the Birmingham Canal was also being built, while the Oxford Canal Act was also passed, linking all four of the great rivers of England, the Thames, Severn, Trent and Mersey. It was now an interconnected waterway system for England. Brindley later declared that all should be narrow canals, and this set the pattern for most of the country. The way British canals were set up was vastly different to anything else yet seen. Firstly, the tunnelling of British canals was on a scale never seen before. Meanwhile, with the exception of the Bridgewater Canal, which the Duke of Bridgewater funded himself, all British canals were set up by private finance. They weren't really after the money generated from the use of the canal, but what the canals would result in, in terms of expansion of industry. The next great canal was the Leeds-Liverpool Canal, authorised in 1770, with the famous Bingley Staircase of Locks, perhaps the most famous point of any British canal on the system. But this canal shows how much the canal system helped to stimulate the Industrial Revolution. Wherever a canal passed meant that a line of mills were set up behind it, while Skipton on its edge grew from a market town to a great industrial one. Titus Salt built a vast mill complex and a model town for his staff with a church, school, library and hospital, all because it was on the canal. In 1750, Birmingham was a small village in the Midlands, with a series of hamlets built around it. The Birmingham Canal was built, and 25 years later, the city of Birmingham was a bustling industrial town. Once again built by Brindley, it was mostly built over the countryside. But once it was built, there is evidence of change and adaption to the coming of the canal. However, very quickly, canals stopped being built. In 1776, the American state declared independence, and profits slumped, and nobody wanted to invest in canals anymore. But with the end of the war, in 1783, the British returned to building canals with a vengeance. Looking at the share price of the Birmingham Canal, which had gone from £140 in 1767 to £370 in 1782 and £1,170 in 1792, there was a desire to replicate this. The Duke of Bridgewater had said that any good canal, quote, 
needed coal at the heel of it, close quotes. But once news of profits that could be made from canals got out, everybody thought it would be easy money. Speculators thought that even before a canal could be built, the shares in it could be sold for a profit. In the 1790s, parliamentary acts were passed at an increasing rate for the building of the canals. Eight acts in 1792, 21 in 1793, and 12 in 1794. This is the beginning of canal mania. Some of these canals were complete duds and never going to make any money. Some canals were connecting towns that already had connections, but some, such as the Grand Junction Canal, which connected Birmingham and London, was highly successful. The aforementioned Grand Junction Canal opened in 1805 and was an immediate success. The Grand Junction Canal shows the improvement in the canal building in Britain over just the 30-year period they had been built. Built by William Jessup, the Grand Junction was far grander and a far more impressive build than anything the Brindley Canals could boast of. His canals crept over the land and went around hills and valleys to keep it level. This new breed of canal used techniques in landscaping and made better use of explosives, while other technologies were beginning to be used making canals the forefront of technology. The two long tunnels on the canal were both broad canals rather than narrow canals previously being built. Earlier engineers had tried to avoid tunnels at all costs, but the Braunston and Blissworth Tunnel at 2049 and 3076 yards respectively were huge canals. In just the two decades, these two tunnels were not seen as anywhere near the difficulty that the earlier Harecastle Hill Tunnel had been. The Blissworth Tunnel and town just to the southern end of Stoke Brunner is perhaps the most famous canal settlement in Britain, according to Anthony Burton and Derek Pratt. A picturesque village with a few mills, and former lock keeper Jack James, who kept much canal memorabilia in his lodge which would later form the basis of a canal museum, which you can actually visit. The whole reason a village was built up here was that it was the stopping off point for horses, dropping off materials before entering and after exiting the Blissworth Tunnel, which even today stands as the ninth longest canal tunnel in the world, and the longest broad canal tunnel in the UK. James Watt, improving on a nuclear engine, managed to lift water into the canal with his new engine. James Watt would partner with Matthew Bolton and have one of their engines installed in 1812, which could shift 250,000 gallons of water per hour. This 1812 engine in Crofton is the oldest steam engine in the world and still in its original house. The development of technology allowed for a change in how canals were developed at the beginning of the 19th century. One of the major catalysts for the Industrial Revolution came when Abraham Darby of Cokebrookdale in Shropshire made iron using coke as fuel rather than charcoal. It had two effects. Charcoal has to be made using timber, a limited resource, especially when ships and the like also needed to use timber. Coal, too, was abundantly available. Furthermore, Derby produced cast iron rather than wrought iron. 
Darby at first used his iron to make cooking pots, but then moved towards using it for construction. So you'll never guess where the town of Ironbridge gets its name. Abraham Darby designed a bridge across the Severn River. Nothing like the bridge had ever been tried before, so it was designed as if it was just a wooden bridge, but now using iron. This had an impact for canals too, as previous bridges had all been made using stone and wood. This led to a spate of iron bridges all over England, and eventually led to iron barges. But the canal mania soon fizzled out. Many canals had been built, and many had been profitable. Some had not been. Some had never even been finished. But it wasn't quite the end of all canal building in Britain or in Europe. Merely, it would only result in a change of scale. The result of all this canal building resulted in huge urbanisation in the towns where canals were centred. Twenty years after the building of the Bridgewater Canal, in 1784, Manchester was described as quote-unquote a large and superb town, and by the end of the 18th century it would double in size again. The rate of growth led to even more demand for coal, building materials and cotton for the mills. All this precipitated more canals to deal with the increasing goods. The first new canal was the Ashton Canal, which was only seven miles long but resulted in an array of branches and connections with various other canals. Branches were linked off to Islington, Stockport, Hollingwood and Fairbottom, and shows the rapid increase that canals were having on the growth of the city. That within a decade or so, nobody could tell where Manchester ended and Stockport and the other towns began. But it wasn't quite the end of all canal building in Britain or in Europe. Merely, it would only result in a change of scale. The result of all this canal building resulted in huge urbanisation in the towns where canals were centred. Twenty years after the building of the Bridgewater Canal, in 1784, Manchester was described as quote-unquote a large and superb town, and by the end of the 18th century it would double in size again. The rate of growth led to even more demand for coal, building materials and cotton for the mills. All this precipitated more canals to deal with the increasing goods. The first new canal was the Ashton Canal, which was only seven miles long, but resulted in an array of branches and connections with the various other canals. Branches were linked off to Islington, Stockport, Hollingwood and Fairbottom, and shows the rapid increase that canals were having on the growth of the city. That within a decade or so, nobody could tell where Manchester ended and Stockport and the other towns began. The idea of ship canals went all the way back to the Exeter Ship Canal and Canal du Midi, but development had largely stopped there. Goods were merely needed to be inland waterways and not much else. But beginning in 1793, when the Gloucester and Beverley Canal Act was passed, it was intended to bypass the shallows on the River Severn and allowed for the larger ships of the day to carry on from Berkeley to Gloucester. It should have been straightforward, especially with all the new technology now being used to move the huge amounts of earth that were needed for the canal excavation. By 1799, canal work had stopped. The engineers weren't up to the job 
and excavating the machine locks looks, from all records, like it didn't work. The project was stopped and given up on until 1817, when the Poor Employment Act was passed, allowing for government money to be spent on public works to help the unemployed. Thomas Telford was brought in as one of the foremost civil engineers of his day, and he finished the canal in 1827. The canal was a success, and brought extra trade and prosperity to the River Severn, but the British canal system would stagnate and decline over time. Other ship canals were built around this time, such as the Caledonian Canal in Scotland, which was supposed to cut through Scotland, so ships could avoid the journey around the north of Scotland, which had always been dangerous. The scheme was backed by the government and designed by William Jessup and Thomas Telford, the two greatest engineers of their day. The canal was big, 60 miles long, and locks designed to take ships 150 foot by 35 foot. The canal opened in 1822, costing £900,000 rather than the £350,000 that was set aside for it. Although this is somewhat understandable, as only local Highlanders were used, rather than the navvies who had experience of building canals. The canal is beautiful, but never really used. It was designed primarily for providing the Royal Navy a route in times of war, and by the time it was finished there wouldn't be another war for nearly 100 years, by which time the ships were too big to get through. The amount of canals built meant there was little spare capacity in the network, but in other vast landscapes where waterways were crucial trading routes, the canal would become crucial there too. We are of course talking about the United States. American growth during the 19th century is inextricably linked to the great rivers of the Mississippi, Missouri and St. Lawrence rivers. The idea of linking major towns to the rivers was an attractive proposition, but there was one major problem. The United States had no experience of building canals. The first major canal in the United States, the Middlesex Canal, was started after receiving its charter in 1792. The job of building the canal went to Laomi Baldwin, who had no idea how to build a canal, and so went to Harvard's library to read all the books on English canals. He set out to build the canal, having never seen a lock in his life. The first surveyor he used was Samuel Thompson, who was useless, managing to record all the heights wrong. But fortunately, Baldwin saw through this and hired William Weston, an English engineer. The canal was finished in 1803 and was 27.5 miles long. It was an immediate success. The second American canal was the Pawtucket Canal, built to bypass the Milo Falls and Rapids near Chelmsford, Massachusetts. The canal proved to be one of the soundest investments ever made in the USA. The American textile industry of the time was only small compared to the British one, but British secrets slowly leaked out and into America. Francis Cabot Lowell was the man who stole the secrets and planned to build an industrial complex and this new canal would prove vital to his success. In Europe, canals had been built to serve existing industry. In America, it proved catalyst for industry. Much early American work was still on river improvements, 
with small canals to improve river flow, but one scheme ended going up further. The Chesapeake and Ohio Canal began with work by George Washington. Washington began to lobby for river navigation improvements to the Potomac River, which was largely unnavigable. With little support from many congressmen due to the large cost and little benefit to their own constituents, Washington furthered his idea to, quote, extend the inland navigation of the eastern waters, communicate them near as possible with those that run westward, open these to the Ohio, open and such as extended the Ohio towards Lake Erie, close quotes. It was ambitious work, but would prove of great value for the quickly developing settlements further west. The result was the Potomac Company, set up with shares listed at $400 each. The canal faced similar problems to that of the other American canals, a lack of expertise. Luckily for James Rumsey, the chief engineer, he had something the English did not have, slaves. He used slaves, indentured workers and Irish immigrants to get the work going. The work proved tricky with Rumsey building five canals to bypass the most important parts of the Potomac. But it took such a long time that the Potomac Company was wound up and a new company formed called the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal Company. Work began on the 4th of July 1828 to link the Potomac to the Ohio and it took 22 years to complete. The company constantly ran out of money with the need to buy land and the constant engineering issues they were faced with. The canal, however, when it was built, was an instant success, with the tolls reaching millions of dollars in good years. But it was never extended further due to the coming of the railroad. One other canal worth talking about is the Erie Canal, sometimes called the New York Canal. It was designed to join Albany on the River Hudson to Lake Erie. Albany barges could then continue down to New York. Starting in 1814 and funded by the state of New York, it too faced many engineering challenges, not least the water supply problem, with the canal liable to be flooded. The project was huge, 363 miles with a rise of 568 feet from Albany to Lake Erie, 83 locks and three aqueducts, all while making the locks capable of carrying a 90-foot by 15-foot barge. The workers were hardly paid and faced malaria and other sicknesses in the marshes which still lay in virgin American territory and more than proved good value for money. Unlike other British canals at this time, it could be used by both cargo and passengers. In his American Notes of 1842, Charles Dickens noted his experiences of travelling by canal and the beauty of travelling through the American landscape in this way. The coming of the steam engine changed much about the canals. First was that the true steam engine was capable of mining coal ever deeper. Secondly was that the steam engine could be used as a pumping engine for the canal's water supply. And there is still the old engine house on many canals around the country, including the Birmingham Canal while the Kennet and Avon Canal at Crofton still has a working original of its pumping station. You may have thought that using the steam engine to power the canal boat 
may therefore have been developed in Britain. But it was in France where Claude Francois Duryfi first started to experiment with it. He started work in 1778 on a boat with duck feet paddles and then a double ratcheted system to turn a rotating paddle wheel. While a different system was developed in America, the paddle steamer was ideal for the major rivers of America. But like in Britain, the canal authorities were not so enamoured with the idea of washing away the banks of the canal with these huge boats. They could be used on ship canals, but not on the canals designed to take narrow boats. The development between narrow barges and steam power was agonisingly slow. The problem was that the side paddles could not be used as boats wouldn't have been able to fit in the locks and stern paddles were vulnerable to damage in the locks too. It was only in the 1860s when steam narrowboats started to be used by the Fellows Morton and Clayton Company on the Grand Junction Canal. Of course, using the canal as a trading route to get goods from the mine to consumers was subject to the coming of a new technology. The locomotive directly challenged the use of canals. Thomas Telford believed that nothing could rival the canal for efficiency as he looked towards the Stockton and Darlington Railway in 1825 as it took coal from mines to the River Tees. Yet, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was a direct challenge to the canal. This train offered travel at 30 miles per hour and it could be used for passengers and goods. The coming of the railway resulted in a railway to match and surpass the canal mania of a generation before. The Manchester Ship Canal was opened in 1894 and the last major canal project in England. Bringing ships all the way into the heart of industrial Manchester, it rather poetically showed the British canal system go full circle. From the Bridgewater Canal, the first major industrial canal linking Manchester's industry with the rest of the world. The same was intended for the Manchester Ship Canal. But it never saw the success of the Bridgewater Canal, and so a possible second generation of ship canals linking up Britain was never enacted. But this isn't the end of our story. Canals found another huge wind. Huge infrastructure projects became possible with new scientific knowledge and the growth in global trade. And a new spur of globalisation meant there was a demand for shortcuts to make shipping routes quicker and more economic. We start in France with Ferdinand de Lesseps, who was sent to Alexandria to serve as vice-consul, and while there he read a number of works by Jacques-Marie Lepère, an engineer. The subject of the book was about linking the Red Sea with the Mediterranean Sea by canal. The idea of this canal left de Lesseps with a mission, and he came to believe that the canal was not only possible, but also possible and profitable. The idea of linking the two seas together was not new. There is evidence of a canal building when French cartographers discovered the remains of canal thought to be built in around 1850 BC, while between 610 to 595 BC there was an effort to build another canal, but it was abandoned when it was thought there was a huge difference in water height level between the two bodies of water. When Napoleon Bonaparte arrived in Egypt in 1798, 
He thought a canal through the Isthmus of Suez would annoy the British, as their control of India meant they had to travel all the way around the Cape of Good Hope, and a canal would give France control of the Pacific and Indian Ocean trading zones. Napoleon and several engineers spent ten days in Suez looking at the practicalities of this idea. The results given to him show that the Red Sea at high tide was 33 feet above the Med at low tide. This was incorrect. There was no real difference between the two seas, and it would take a generation to rectify the error, making Napoleon II think it would be too much effort to deal with any of these problems. By the 1830s, the British were sniffing around the Isthmus too, with an idea of some mix of canal and railway, or a canal to the Nile and back out again. But with the huge ships now being built, and the huge amount of traffic, the idea was abandoned. A canal through the isthmus was the only answer, but this would require Britain and France getting along. Only a few decades since the end of the Napoleonic War, this was not possible. Meanwhile, the British Prime Minister, Lord Palmerston, thought a canal would divert trade away from Britain and towards mainland Europe. However, Britain would still benefit most from a canal, while British relations with the Ottomans, who controlled more of North Africa than the Middle East, was also at stake in the building of a canal. If the Ottomans built a canal, the British thought the Ottomans should be allowed to keep it. There was the thought they would just have to annex Egypt outright if a canal was built. The British dithered about what to do with the French, however, and the French were just as keen on the canal as were the Ottomans. However, it's a measure of the power the British had that the French didn't build it yet. The French knew, at this point, they would lose in any conflict with the British. Survey after survey was carried out, but when de Lesseps left his diplomatic role with the French Ministry, he embarked on a full-time project to get the Suez Canal built. In 1853, a pro-British leader was in power in Egypt. Meanwhile, the French and British were allied in the Crimean War. The British held the position of first among equals in this alliance. But when the leader of Egypt died in 1854, it brought to the throne Mohammed Said Pasha, who knew Delesseps' father, and the younger Delesseps had spent much of his childhood with the new leader of Egypt. It took only a few weeks for Mohammed Said Pasha to sign a document granting Delesseps the authority to build this canal. Even though the finishing of the canal wasn't guaranteed, the building would still start. The Suez Canal Company was incorporated in Egypt and headquartered in Paris. 56% of its shares were held by French shareholders and 44% by the Viceroy of Egypt. Napoleon III threw his full weight behind the project and remained a supporter through the diplomatic wrangling that would follow with the British. The British claimed that any canal would sever Ottoman possessions in Africa and Asia and make Egypt a French protectorate, while adding that India became British by the acts of independent businessmen who claimed parts of India steadily built this up, resulting in British sovereignty over India. They suggested the same could happen with France in Egypt. However, two major companies in Britain, the East India Company and P&O Shipping Line, saw what this new canal would do to their bottom line. 
De Lesseps continued his preparation into building the canal, bringing over engineers from all over Europe to finance plans for the project. The consensus amongst the engineers was positive, and a report was published in 1857, and extremely positive about the project. In 1857, an Indian mutiny required a large amount of British troops to be rushed to India. The troops had to go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope, showing the need for a quicker transport route. In 1858, two more events happened. Lord Palmerston fell, and William Gladstone began to point out the flaws in British arguments about the Suez Canal development. He argued that the control of the Suez Canal would naturally fall into the hands of the greatest maritime power. And if the canal separated Egypt from Turkey and dismembered the Ottoman Empire, then that was their concern, not a British one. De Lesseps capitalised the company, and work began in around April 1859. At this stage, there wasn't much excavation. It was all about building roads and infrastructure required for such a massive engineering project. Napoleon III still supported it and told the British that the canal enjoyed the full support of the French government and that the Austrians and Russians were both supportive too. The British changed approach and started to lament the French use of forced labour. Britain was the leader of the anti-slavery movement and the British were in opposition to all forms of slavery. So de Lesseps introduced labour contracts for the workers. But by then, work was not going to stop. On the 18th of November, 1862, the waters of the Med flowed into Lake Kimshire, and the first major part of the project was completed. The Suez Canal, as it turned out, was not quite the great engineering project everybody thought it to be. It was more a diplomatic project. The route was almost all sand rather than rock or anything else, and there were no locks needed at all. However, a huge workforce was still needed. There were 34,000 at any one time, and 1.5 million workers on the canal overall. The British were still not happy. They tried to stoke a Labour rebellion, but this failed. It was soon clear that nothing was going to stop its building, and so they began to think of a way to take over the canal. On the 17th of November, 1869, the Suez Canal was opened under French control. But British pettiness was not yet done. French Empress Eugenie, aboard an imperial yacht, was supposed to be the first down the canal. But on the evening of the ceremony, a Royal Navy ship, the HMS Newport, manoeuvred itself ahead of the yacht, and at dawn went through the canal first. The captain of the Newport was given a severe reprimand by the Admiralty for his actions, but privately he was congratulated for humiliating the French, and for his superb seamanship in managing to sneak the Newport through a mass of ships at the mouth of the canal in total darkness, undetected. The British, however, were not as sore losers as that might suggest. De Lesseps was given the Grand Cross of the Star of India by Queen Victoria and awarded the freedom of the City of London. But that still doesn't deny the fact that the opening of the Suez Canal was a disaster for Britain initially. The British merchant fleet was still largely sail ships and so could not use the canal as its winds travelled west to east and so they still had to go through the Cape of Good Hope. Once these issues were sorted, the canal proved to be more beneficial for Britain than any other country. Yet the canal was still French 
And that wouldn't do for British foreign policy, which relied on the control of all the major maritime choke points. A choke point is a geographical feature where an army or navy must pass through in order to get where they need to go. To control the choke points is to hold a major advantage for any great power. Britain controlled the Straits of Gibraltar, English Channel, Cape of Good Hope and the Straits of Malacca, which was the reason for the founding of Singapore and Hong Kong. So they weren't going to give up a choke point to the French this easily. And so when Egypt in 1875 was buckling under the debt, the British bought their share of the Suez Canal for £4 million. The British too moved slowly into Egypt and made it effectively a protectorate. In 1888 it was agreed that the canal would be a neutral zone under British protection, while Egypt became ever more under British control. The Suez Canal over the past century has been the subject of much geopolitical conflict from two world wars to the Suez Crisis and even to this day. In 2015, an extension was added to the canal to increase the amount of traffic. While ships continue to use the canal, it costs, however, about $350,000 for the average tanker to use the canal. And so, with the low oil prices in recent years, many have started to go around the Cape of Good Hope again. But we finish this podcast with one of the greatest mega-projects and engineering works, not only of canals, but in human history. On the 27th of January 1870, the Nipsec set off from New York, full with soldiers, engineers, doctors, geologists, telegraphers, and photography Timothy H. O'Sullivan, who had been Matthew Brady's assistant during the American Civil War, who we met in the photography episode. They all set off for the Isthmus of Panama. They went to Darien, which was known to be the narrowest point on the Central American Isthmus an isthmus being a narrow strip of land connecting two larger landmasses between two separate bodies of water. There was thought to be many possible areas for a ship canal on the isthmus. The crew were challenged to measure the heights of mountains, depths of rivers and harbours. They were to gather botanical and geological specimens and report on the climate and the natives they encountered. Six more expeditions were to follow. Darien and this part of the world was one of the least known areas on the entire planet. Sixteen years before this expedition, Dr. Edward Cullen, an Irish doctor, announced to the world he had found a walking route from the Atlantic to the Pacific and had marked it out. He said there was no place more than 150 feet above sea level, and it caused something of a sensation. A joint expedition was organised by Britain, France, Colombia and the United States. The Americans got to the place first and set off by themselves taking only a few days provision. Isaac Strain and 27 men almost instantly got lost and lost Cullen's trail. They followed random rivers and ended up looping over and over again. Verging on starvation, they lived on toad and palms that burned the enamel from their teeth and caused excruciating stomach cramps. The heat and severity of the rain was unlike anything they'd experienced before. Several men died, and so Strain and the four strongest went off to find help. Strain managed to find a Native American village and set up a rescue mission to pick up the others. Strain died a few years later at 36, having never recovered from the journey.
But this was the age of the Victorian explorer, as men were finding out about the African interior and the American West. And with the development of the Suez Canal, nothing seemed out of the question. There had been proposals from the 16th century, with the publication of a book by priest Francisco Lopez de Goma in 1552. And so most Americans thought the most obvious place would be Nicaragua, and going through Lake Nicaragua, with Panama coming second. But the problem with building any canal was that there was very little geographical information about the Central American region. The earliest work on the canal was in 1811, identifying Nicaragua as the route that posed the fewest difficulties. To show the problems, even the exact position of Panama City was unknown, while nobody knew the elevations of the mountains around Panama. The author of the 1811 work, who had never actually been to Central America, said Panama was the worst choice due to its high terrain. But the mountains, he estimated, were three times higher than they actually were. Humboldt, who wrote the work, estimated the Nicaragua Canal to be similar to the Caledonian Canal, with the lakes in Nicaragua offering a water source similar to the locks on the Caledonian Canal. In 1850, a railroad was built over Panama. It took five years to complete, at six times the expected price. For a generation of Americans, this railroad was a romantic dream. It's winding through the jungles in the world's first transcontinental railroad and the most expensive railroad yet built. The railroad was the primary conduit between the east and west coasts of the American continent. The railroad was also hugely profitable, making $7 million in its first year compared to the $8 million building cost. The Panama Railroad Company was at one point the highest priced stock on the New York Stock Exchange. The huge money to be made from this, of course, got other investors interested in Panama too. Matthew Fontaine Moray, a pioneer oceanographer, told a Senate committee that a Panama railroad would lead directly to a canal by showing how immense the business would be. While building the railroad, the engineers had discovered a gap in the mountain where the elevation was only 275 feet, 200 feet less than previously thought, and that there was no difference in sea levels between the Pacific and the Atlantic, the only difference being the tides. The tides on the Pacific, however, were huge, 18 to 20 feet compared to barely a foot on the Atlantic. Yet the building of the railroad showed another thing to every prospector. Panama was a disease hotspot. The deaths for the small amount of railroad built was huge. Estimated at 6,000 deaths for the 47-mile railroad was a stupendous amount. Such was the death rate and the anonymity of the mostly black, Irish and Chinese workers that medical schools all over the world bought the corpses for medical research. It was for this reason that Nicaragua was thought to be the most obvious place for a canal. Nicaragua was closer to the United States than Panama, and it competed for the east-west coast trade with Panama and was less disease-ridden. The need for a canal only grew as Matthew Perry, not the Friends actor, opened up Japan, and the new market was there for American goods if only they could reach it. A Wall Street man estimated that a canal would save $36 million for the US, and $48 million for all nations a year. 
But it wasn't just the Americans trying to build the canal. French parties too had been surveying the area. American and French expeditions went to try and find where the best point for a canal would be, and what type of canal it would be to. Would it be a passenger or a cargo canal? Would it be a cut-through canal like Suez, or lift over the landscape with locks? One expedition in 1870 would finally answer these questions to everybody's satisfaction. The canal should be a cut-through canal, and from what was known of Central America, the only place a cut-through canal could be built was Panama. The Suez Canal was still a remarkable piece of construction, and it opened too in 1869. But a few years later, and all French pride was destroyed following the destruction at the hands of the German army. France was forced to pay 5 billion francs, which was intended to keep the French humiliated. And the French bounced back quickly to everybody's surprise. And Ferdinand de Lesseps was still around, living off his fame from Suez, and still the chairman and president of the Suez Canal Company. He talked of building a railroad from Paris to Moscow, and from there to meet Beijing and Bombay. He talked of flooding the Sahara Desert to the size of Spain, and generally held the position of one of the leading men of his day. Meanwhile, France was changing too, following their defeat. It was thought that an inward nature had caused France to lose the war. And so geography societies sprung up, and geography was made mandatory in school. In 1872, around the world in 80 days was serialised, and in 1875, de Lesseps made a public declaration that he wanted to build an inter-oceanic canal. His public declaration caused events to snowball. The Société de Géographie said it would sponsor an international congress for the purposes of evaluating the scientific considerations at stake in building a Central American canal. A French survey was sent out and was minuscule compared to the American survey a few years before. The French Lucien Napoleon Bonaparte Wise, related to you-know-who, signed a deal with the Colombian president to build the canal. A canal congress was set up and met on the 15th of May 1879. The greatest enterprise of the day it was called, and it drew the great and the good from the scientific and engineering world. 22 countries attended the conference, including the independent nation of Hawaii, while some of the great canal builders of the time were there too. There was also a large American presence. There was much talk at the conference with Wise putting up a poor show in defending his plan. He continued to state that he believed in a sea-level canal, while the Americans said locks would be needed. Altogether, 14 plans were drawn up from amongst dignitaries. In a week of debate, it had come down to a wise plan for the Panama Isthmus and an American canal for Nicaragua. De Lesseps said in private the American plan was better, but the wise plan was French, and the Panama route was the French canal. There would be no lock, and the tides dealt with by a tidal lock at the end of the canal. De Lesseps then swung into action, and in days the conference had organised a company who provided the initial 2 million francs for investment. Then he got a similar deal to his Suez Canal raising exercise, and got lots of small investors to part with their savings to help fund the canal. But people were more sceptical than in the Suez days. Firstly, twice the money was needed as Suez, 
and the financiers did not back him either. Furthermore, the project was so expensive, many believed it would never pay a dividend. In the end, the stock issue was something of a failure. Less than 10% of the shares were purchased. Nevertheless, de Lesseps went to Panama. I should probably point out that at this point in history, Panama was a part of Colombia, not an independent country like it is today. But that was soon about to change. De Lesseps arrived in Panama and found the place stunningly beautiful. But as soon as they arrived, they also found the place to be a nightmare. They could cross miles of swamp, reach unpassable rivers, rivers that had flooded, and when they arrived, the railroad had not been used in five weeks because of the floods. That should have been warning enough. Another problem De Lesseps faced was in the words of David McCulloch, in very 1970s language, quote, everything had to be brought to Panama, including the men to do the work. The Panamanians themselves would be of no use. The poor were unused to heavy manual labour and were without ambition. The upper classes regarded physical work as beneath their dignity. Close quotes. After a quick trip to the United States, where he was treated like a mix of rock star and war hero, De Lesseps authorised another stock issue of the Panama Canal. La Grande Enterprise was one of the greatest financial events in history, but it had almost nothing to do with money. It was about French pride. It was almost a cult with people buying stocks because it was De Lesseps. The other issue of blind hope was that the Suez Canal stock had been originally listed at 500 francs, but was now worth 2,000 francs and paying 17% dividends a year. 500 francs was the annual salary for half the working population of the country. The sale of the stock was pushed by banks who saw the opportunity to add commission onto each share sold. Most buyers were ordinary people. Despite the stock selling exceptionally well this time, the bankers' fees added up to 32 million francs just by themselves. Eventually, in 1881, the funding had been secured and the canal project got underway. The project got underway with very little geology being done. This was not Suez 2.0. Suez had been flat. This was not. Suez was digging through sand. This was not. Suez was hot, while Panama had for eight months of the year a humidity of 98%. Suez had very little rainfall, measured in inches. In Panama, rainfall was measured in feet. Ten foot of rainfall a year in some places. While Panama had a whole jungle and major river in the way. The labour supply, housing and health of the workers hadn't even been addressed yet. After a few months' work, the problem started. And the men were in constant fear of three of the most poisonous snakes in the world, while pumas and jaguars prowled. Ricks, spiders, ants, mosquitoes and flies and other forms of insects constantly buzzed around. The dry season lasted for four months, where water carts had to be used to keep the dust down. And then in May, the rain came back for the next eight months. The rain was tremendous and an inch could fall in one hour. Six inches over a day was not uncommon. The locals knew the patterns and when this happened, they'd run for cover. Often the rainstorms would turn into thunderstorms, but the French 
and their canal carried on. Or at least the black and few locals they were using as labourers were forced to carry on. A few months into it, and a canal line had been cleared for part of the journey. In the first year, only about one in ten new labourers stayed after the first six months. But they were relatively well treated. There were doctors on site, and good ventilated houses were built. It's often thought the French didn't care about the threat of disease, but this isn't true. There was a lot of money and effort put into this aspect of the work. But the effect of the climate on the workers had not been thought through. Everything made of iron or steel rusted, everything else moulded. Men in the field were drenched every day, and then went back next day in the same clothes. It was hell upon earth, an English traveller said. De Lesseps then decided to buy the Panama Railroad for one third of the capital of the canal company. He then went back and asked for a loan of 300 million francs extra, which he said was ample to pay the bill. Nobody challenged De Lesseps. By 1881, there were 200 technicians and 800 labourers. And then, in the summer, yellow fever hit. In June, the first worker died of yellow fever. On July the 25th, one of the best engineers also died. And soon after that, the yellow fever deaths started to increase. De Lesseps said the cases had been brought in from abroad. Then, the malaria hit. Nobody knows how many died, especially in the first few years. The company counted 80, but it was probably more. And it was the malaria in Panama which was far deadlier than the yellow fever. Malaria was well known to everybody, not just in poor places, but in Panama malaria was not just a flash in the pan. It was a constant threat. Malaria was known as the white man's disease. Black people of the Caribbean had a slightly better resistance to it many having been exposed to mild cases as children. But yellow fever was terrifying for all those who came into contact. People still believed it was caused by bad air. However, even by 1881, there were theories that it was caused by mosquitoes. It wasn't bad air, but it was caused by the marshes where mosquitoes bred. Amongst physicians, there was a growing belief that mosquitoes were the cause of malaria and yellow fever. But the French didn't believe it yet. The miasma theory was fixed in minds and had been for generations. After the path had been cleared, it was time for the digging. On the 20th of January, 1882, with much champagne and dynamite, it was started with a shovel and pick. The work was slow, with constant revisions on the amount of work needed, and more and more rock and earth needed to be removed, as de Lesseps said nothing needed to change. Not extra time nor money would be needed by the huge amount of growth of work that was now needing to get done. New dredging machines were brought in and did actually start to clear the Atlantic side of the project, which was the easier of the two sides. But the deaths continued. 125 employees died in 1882 and 420 in 1883. But this didn't count the contractors, who were the ones that gave the canal company a bad reputation. Not wanting to pay one dollar a day for the hospital costs, they fired men at the first sign of illness. It was considered a joke that if you didn't have malaria before you went into hospital, then you would shortly after. 75% of those that died did so of malaria, and for every one person officially recorded dying, two died without any record being made. 
To the people around the canal, the morale was sucked out of them. Despite no report of the death toll in France, too many parents were being informed of their children's death for it not to leak out, and that all may not be going to plan. But due to the glorious nature of the canal, many young French engineers still went out to France. But things were getting worse. People were getting used to the conditions and the constant rain and death, but as hard as they pushed, the technical problems were proving impossible. The river Chagres was the worst of them. Nobody had any idea how to manage the river when it overflowed, and it did a lot. After one storm, it was recorded as rising 10 feet in 24 hours, and then another storm the same summer in 1884 resulted in it going up 14 feet. Then there was the geography of the place. With the 40 miles between Cologne and Panama City, there were 17 different rock formations, six major geological faults, five major cores of volcanic rock. A geologist would have the time of their life. An engineer trying to dig through it would not. As the time moved on and the digging continued, more and more people were dying. 1885 was probably the worst, with the new arrivals suffering the worst. Workers had been there for mere weeks before suffering from yellow fever. It was estimated that for every hundred new arrivals, about 20 would die, and only 20 would be strong enough to work, and that was amongst the labourers. Amongst the French, it was estimated that two, often three out of four, would die. Still, in 1885, nobody would challenge de Lesseps. At one meeting, somebody called for an investigation into the company's management, but nobody would second the motion. Foreign papers, with the New York Tribune, and London's Financial Times began attacking the management and the claims made by the management. Yet, as foreign newspapers began to increase the criticism of the canal, it began to filter into France. As the stocks in the Panama Canal Company reached a new low, a hurricane swept across the Caribbean, killing 50 seamen. The Chagres River swelled 30 feet in a few hours. There were growing press reports that the building of the canal wasn't going as well as advertised, with people getting more and more suspicious. But people didn't quite sell their stocks yet. A new plan was made, this time including locks, and these locks would be designed by Gustave Eiffel, a French engineer who's famous for designing another building in Paris. His tower, which was just about to be built, would be the tallest structure in the world. Eiffel was seen as a genius engineer, and a French genius at that. The announcement halted somewhat public criticism of the project, but the stock price continued to fall. On the morning of a bond sale for the company, an unknown person wired a telegram to every major city saying de Lesseps had died. He hadn't, but this threw the stock price into freefall. This should have been the end of the company, but people still had faith in de Lesseps. For many people who put their lives into this company, its success meant financial security or disaster. Eventually, de Lesseps realised this couldn't continue, and so they suspended trading and asked the government for a three-month moratorium on bills and expenses. The news was carried around the world, and the French government declined the request and sent in the administrators. The company was liquidated on the 4th of February, 1889. 800,000 people had lost investments, and later a corruption scandal broke out when de Lesseps had raised a lottery loan to fund the company. 
and for the legislative approval was sealed by the bribery of more than 150 parliamentarians. Called the greatest financial scandal of the century, it cost 1.435 billion francs and the lives of 22,000 men. Anti-Semitism was whipped up, claiming it was the Jewish bankers who had stolen money and would surely have a large effect on the upcoming Dreyfus Affair that would rock the French Republic from 1894. De Lesseps got off lightly, with many still believing in his genius, blaming the bankers and financiers for the failure. Despite the failure, it was often forgotten in France that a lot of work had been done. 50 million cubic metres of earth and rock, about two-thirds of Suez, had been removed. Many maps and surveys undertaken, hospitals and shops and docks built, but for the French it was a total defeat. It was seen as impossible for any private company to build and finish the canal. It needed a government. It was thought the Americans would build a canal at Guatemala and Panama would remain the greatest ruin on earth. When President William McKinley was assassinated in 1901, it brought Theodore Roosevelt to the Oval Office. Roosevelt was a man of action, and one could see lots of similarities between de Lesseps and Roosevelt. Firstly, Roosevelt saw it as vital for the US to be a country of two oceans, and the canal would be the first step to American naval power. The Americans wanted this canal, and everybody assumed it would be built at Guatemala, and, once again, the benefits of building a canal at Guatemala were brought up over and over again. It was closer to the USA, and easier to build with less disease. It was seen as the American route. Despite all the assumptions that it would be built in Guatemala, just before the Guatemala Canal was signed off on, news came from Paris that they wanted to sell their Panama holdings. In one of the bits of perfect timing, Independent French and American moneymen both judged the French company's Panama holdings at precisely the same, $40 million. Things changed very quickly from then on, and on the 9th of July, the House voted 308 to 2 to start work on the Guatemala Canal, but by the 20th, the view was for a Panama Canal instead. As the Americans worked out what they could do with the equipment the French left behind, it was already clear that the canal wasn't big enough. From a width of 98 feet and a depth of 29 feet, it needed to be 150 feet with a depth of 35 feet. Ships had gotten even bigger, and the newly built Suez Canal was already outdated for the larger ships. On the 26th of July, the House passed the Spooner Bill, authorising the purchase of French assets of the Panama Canal. At the same time, they also faced the problem of Colombia. Colombia, of course, had sovereignty over the canal zone, and they weren't too favourable to the United States. The United States effectively wanted to lease the sovereignty of the Panama Canal, but their offers weren't seen as generous enough. Colombians weren't happy with the proposed treaty, and that it was so favourable to the US, and not to Colombia. When the Colombians rejected the US treaty, the Panamanians succeeded from Colombia with US support. There were other reasons for it too, but with US support in there for the secession, there was not a lot Colombia could do. With Panama now independent, the US signed a treaty with the new country, which were on the terms of the previous offer with Colombia.
1848, Dr. Josiah Clark Knott was the man who made the first claim that it was mosquitoes rather than bad air that caused malaria and the other fever. His theory was largely ignored at the time. In one of history's remarkable coincidences, in 1854, he attended Amelia Gale Gorgas giving birth. Why is that important? Well, her son was William Crawford Gorgas. Do you remember the name from the USA episode? No? Well, British doctor Ronald Ross was the one who found that malaria came from mosquitoes, while in England, after dissecting a mosquito that had fed on a malaria patient. Well, William Gorgas was in Havana, and in one of the most infected cities on earth. And after discussion, he was still unconvinced that mosquitoes were the cause, but he thought the only way to sort it out would be by experiment. By attacking the mosquitoes, he successfully reduced the amount of yellow fever and malaria. In 1900, there were 1,400 known cases in the city. In 1902, there were no known cases of yellow fever and only 77 deaths from malaria, compared to 325 in 1900. This resulted in Gorgas being appointed the head of the army's attempt to conquer tropical diseases. It is known now how important this was, but not at the time. When Gorgas got to the isthmus, it was a mosquito paradise. Havana was only a small area, and the success in ridding it of yellow fever and only reducing malaria was due to the fact that the two are carried by a different type of mosquito. And attacking the one that carried yellow fever had some impact on the one carrying malaria too. In 1902, American work got underway on the Panama Canal. Such was the power of the Panamanian jungle that most of the French equipment left there was so heavily under the jungle by now that it was unusable, while a village was later to have been found completely hidden under the jungle growth. But the French had left a canal of 25 deep, 70 feet wide and 11 miles long. A start at least. Work for the Americans wasn't too much better than for the French. With poor food and monotonous work and the water, well nobody even tried to drink the water. The first few cases of yellow fever were found, not really at the canal, but cruiser that was bringing people into Panama. The clearing of Panama of mosquitoes was well underway by making an inventory of every piece of water in Panama City. Gorgas found mosquitoes in almost every office. It still wasn't only yellow fever and malaria, but smallpox, tuberculosis, dysentery, and then one Barbadian worker died of the plague. Immediately Gorgas and his team evacuated the whole area and fumigated buildings and burned a lot of animals. A ransom of 10 cents was put on any rat or mouse brought in. Hundreds of rats were brought in, and some were the size of guinea pigs. Several rats were found to be infected with the plague. After a delay of a year and slow progress in 1905, John Stevens was brought in by the Americans to build the canal, and was considered by some as the best engineer in America. He ordered Gorgas to rid Panama of yellow fever in four months. In 1905-2 there were still disease problems, with another case of bubonic plague hitting another Barbadian worker. By November 1905, there were 4,000 people working on just Gorgas' health initiatives. He requisitioned tons of material. He fumigated Panama City several times over. 
Cisterns and cesspools were oiled once a week, and all the major cities of Panama were given running water. It was one of the costliest and most concentrated health campaigns the world had yet seen. With all this effort, by December 1905, yellow fever had largely gone. Now to build the canal, and Stevens upgraded the railroad to, to enable it to carry heavier equipment and more supplies. The workers came from everywhere, 97 countries according to the records, most from Barbados and Guadalupe. Workers were subject to racial segregation, but there was always a need for more labour. Americans didn't want to go, especially as the economy was good at home, and black Americans were unable to be marketed too, as southern leaders didn't want cheap labour being drained from their economy. Even Japanese workers thought the isthmus was too unsafe. In the end, workers from the Basque region of Spain were brought in. Their ability to work in the heat and recent experiences of building railroads all added to that. 8,000 of them went to Panama on twice the wages of the West Indians. On the 9th of November 1906, for the first time in history, a US serving president left the USA. Roosevelt left the USA to travel to Panama. Roosevelt wished to see Panama at its worst, and so chose November. On his second day there, the rain was the heaviest it had been in 15 years. Three inches fell in two hours. While stood at the controls of one of the machines, he was photographed with a hat on. The hat was Ecuadorian, but ever since we've referred to them as Panama hats. Not long after Roosevelt left office, Stevens seemed to have some sort of breakdown, perhaps due to exhaustion, and so he was replaced by George Washington Gerfels. Gerfels made some changes to the basic plan, including making it bigger. The locks would be 110 feet wide, rather than 95 feet, to meet the demands of the Navy at the time. Slowly work round on, the Cubalera cut linking the middle artificial lake with the Pacific. It was worked on all day, every day for seven years. In the last few years of work, there were 50,000 workers at any one time. The building of the locks began in 1909 and took four years. They were thought to be a wonder of the world. With the building of the canal and the last of the canal dug, it looked like the Panama Canal was finally finished. The first boat going through was a French crane boat going through almost unnoticed. Nobody could quite believe the canal had been finished, but finished it was, and people started to be let go from work. Applications were made by many to work in the rapidly expanding automobile industry. The canal would be equal for all, and despite lobbying, American ships would not be able to use it free of charge. There were going to be mass celebrations on both the East Coast and West Coast, while a huge flotilla was going to go through, but then other events got in the way. By the time the first ships were ready to go through, Europe was at war with each other. The French defeat at Sedan had caused the beginning of the Panama Canal, and it was finished mere days after the continuation of Franco-German enmity. The first ocean-going ship through the canal and its official opening was relegated to the back pages of the paper. The canal was a huge expense at 639 million US dollars, not counting the French work. The Panama Canal had been expanded and the size of the locks now determined the standard size of freight ships. 
The Panamax ships were built to the exact specifications that could fit through the canal. Since the expansion in 2016, new ships are now called New Panamax. The Panama Canal stands as one of humanity's greatest achievements. Hundreds of years of canal building and 25 years of building make that 50 miles some of the most important land on earth. The importance of canals is still with us. Shipping is still by far the cheapest way to move goods and in this era of globalisation it will continue to be so. Canals aren't finished yet either with talk of more large ship canals being built. A Nicaraguan canal is still being talked about. The latest is that it will be built by China, while a canal cutting through the Straits of Malacca to bypass Singapore has been talked about, and a canal between the Caspian and Persian Gulf has also been speculated. But if they are ever built, we will have to see. Canals may not feel like much. In England they're small and out of the way. Jokes about people throwing shopping trolleys in the canal abound. And now they're mostly used for walking routes and lived on by retired eccentric people who want to live on the waterways. But canals are still vital to everything we love. Food, electronics, textiles, cars and parts are all still sent through canals. If all the canals of the world shut down, you would notice it. It would take far longer to get everything around and everything would rise in price. The global prosperity we live in is partly down to the modern canal. While the canals of the 18th and 19th century were vital in stimulating the Industrial Revolution. And so for all of these reasons, the invention of canals is listed at number 67 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.